Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the HuffPost Warzone Live at Labour Conference. We're delighted to have with us Emily Thornbury, who needs no introduction, but for those of you who aren't aware, she's the MP for Islington South and for Finsbury. She's also the Shadow Foreign Secretary and, on top of that, the Shadow for Secretary of State. Um, all of those titles are equally important, I'm sure, to Emily. Um, let's kick off with the big subject, Brexit. Um, Emily, can I first ask you, what do you make of this whole idea of a special Brexit conference to be held after the general election? Well, look, everybody knows what my position is on Brexit. I have been saying it um, publicly for some time now. I think that we should, we should have a second referendum, that, uh, that Remain should be on the ballot paper, and that the Labour Party should campaign to Remain. Now, obviously, the question is, what's going to be on the ballot paper and at the moment um, all that could be on the ballot paper as far as I can see is this nonsense from Boris Johnson which is no deal so it's difficult and looks like we're heading for a general election so the question then is what's going to be in our manifesto and it does seem to me that the lesson that we should learn from the European elections is that we do need to be clear and we campaigned in the last referendum to remain um, obviously, there were some people who didn't, and you know that's a matter for them. Um, but I think that we're an internationalist party, we're a socialist party, and I think that it is natural in those circumstances for us to campaign to remain officially. And we're here. Uh, we're a big old democratic party. We've got half a million members. This is the way in which we make policy. And as Jeremy has been saying for the last few days, he, he's a, a servant of the Labour Party and of the members. I am too. And I think that it's important that the members get their voices heard and get their voices heard over this conference. So I don't see, since we're all here, I can't see why we can't make a decision now. Um, that's my view, but, you know, it's my view. My view is as important as anybody else in this hall or any of the other delegates who are coming. Um, it's for us to decide. Um, and, uh, and we'll see where we go. But in the end, you know, I'm a servant of the Labour Party and the Labour Party is its members. And to the corollary of that would be if the party decides at this conference, um, whichever policy it wants on Brexit, that, that would then go forward to a Clause 5 meeting that would draft the manifesto. And you think that's the sensible sequence of events. Conference makes policy, it goes to the manifesto meeting, and then you go into a general election with a coherent Brexit policy rather than having one decided after that election? Well, I mean, there is a certain amount of clarity. I mean, I think that it's, you know, we shouldn't overlook the importance of the way in which we have moved towards a second referendum. And I do think that in those circumstances, people who want to remain in the European Union would be wise to vote Labour because we will be offering them another referendum. Um, and people who don't want us to don't want to leave the, the European Union you know, will also have an, will also have their voice heard. And frankly it may be that the public will decide that they definitely do want to leave. But what's important is that we put before them some realistic choices about what leaving can look like in a way that can look after jobs and the economy best. 
It's just my firm view that actually nothing looks, looks after jobs in the economy better than being in the European Union. Jeremy knows I think that. I've been telling him that for years. <laughs> Everybody knows that's what I think. Um, you know, so let's see. As I say, I, I, I think that uh, this conference should thrash this out. And how helpful is it for people like Len McCluskey to say, as he did last night, that actually all the CLPs who drafted all those Brexit motions for this conference should withdraw them? Yeah. Well, I mean, I... Um... I like that, yeah. <laughs> Well, I said what I think. I think that, that, you know, I come from the same cloth as, as Jeremy Corbyn. I'm a Democrat, he's a Democrat, we are servants of the members, and I think that's the way to be. Interesting. Well, um, the impact on Labour of whatever decision you take obviously will be huge. Um, Lloyd Russell Moyle last night said that if Labour doesn't have a clear Remain position uh, on that referendum, that coming general election, you could actually come third is that hyperbole or is there a real threat of that? Well, who knows? I mean, who knows? We do know that in 2017, that when we got an equal bite of the cherry to the Tories, when, you know, at the moment, if, if the Tories come out with some nonsense bit of policy, they get an entire column and then we get two lines at the bottom. You know how it works. And in a general election, there will be, we will get equal say. And what we did last time was we increased the Labour vote by by a larger amount than any time during an election since 1945. So when the Labour Party is off the leash, when we are able to be heard, we can increase our vote and our support. I do think that, that we have to be careful about, about being clear and for our members to know that they can be on the doorstep and it's okay for them to speak from their heart and say, look, we're going to have a second referendum. We will be duly deferential to the public when they make a choice. We will put forward the best possible choice we can. We will negotiate a, a deal which will be in the customs union, close to the single market, you know all the things that we want, um, as an insurance policy. And we will also put forward Remain, and it will be for you to decide, and we will do as we're told. But we, per, I personally, I, you know, Labour member from Northampton, believe that we should... Remain, and I, I Labour candidate should say that as well. Yeah, I think that they should be able to say that. But you know, that's where we are. I mean, and 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 obviously, we do know. I mean, we don't trust the polling because of our own experience from two years ago. But it isn't that we don't read it, and um, and clearly, you know, the polling is there and does make the case that we are likely to lose many, many more people who voted remain in the referendum than people who voted to leave. And the reasoning seems to be this that amongst Leave voters on the whole, there are a whole panoply of, of, of things which they, they need. They need and they cannot get from any other government than a Labour government. And so they are aligned with us on all the things that matter to them on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, we disagree on Brexit. But when it comes to Remain, the Remain voters tend to have it as their first priority. And the polling does show that you know, we could lose 30% of a Labour vote to the Greens and to the Lib Dems, unless we are clear about where we stand on Europe. So, yeah, I want Jeremy to be in number 10. Yeah, I want us to have the best chance of getting Jeremy into number 10 in order to be able to deliver our socialist manifesto. Yeah, that's what I want, that's what we all want. My view, personally, is that our best chance of doing that is to speak truthfully, which is, we as a party are a Remain party, we are Europeans, we're internationalists, and we're socialists. But as you were suggesting, that, that polling evidence suggests that Labour could get effectively crushed, couldn't it, in a general election by the two, Tory, the extremes of Tory and Brexit party and others such as the Lib Dems on the other side. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this quite a lot, and I keep running through lots of films, you know, where you get the hero you know, standing in the middle and the walls are coming in, you know, there's sort of... And it's used lots of times. It's used by used in Indiana Jones when there are walls... Or, or Zorro, I think there's also a bit in Star Wars, you know, where they're in the crusher. And the answer is not to just stand there and go, oh, well, I know I'm right. You know, the idea is to get out of there, you know, is to get out of there. And that's kind of where we are with these two sides, you know, pushing us and pushing our vote. And to what extent has your own experience in Islington um, affected your view? Or, or is it more a wider view that you've picked up nationally? For example, you know, you had a baptism of fire when you were first elected in 2005. The Lib Dems were 480 votes behind you. 84. Um, 484. So, of course, you don't forget them. Um, now, obviously, now you've got a 20,000 majority, different scenario, but are you still worried that in seats like yours and other seats that actually this could really cause damage? I'm, I mean, I, when you said at the beginning, you know, all the various titles I have, you know, the most important one for me is being the MP for Islington South and Finsbury. And, and my politics is, of course, it is informed by my electorate. And they're not exactly backwards in coming forwards, right, my lot. And, and you know, I get many, 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 many thousands and thousands of, uh, of emails a week in which they tell me what their views are. And, of course, the problem has always been, uh, with the referendum cutting across all of this, is that whilst I have always stood up for people in Islington South and Finsbury, I've also been part of the leadership team. And the leadership team is a national team. So when you have... A a national referendum that says that we should leave and my constituents say to 73% of them say that we should remain it's clearly a struggle but in the end I had a duty I felt as a statesperson I hope um, and working in a team of people who believe that our first priority was to try to keep the country together which is why the morning after the referendum we said right we picked ourselves up and we said, right, this is the result of the referendum. What we're going to try and do is we're going to try and ensure, because there's lots of different ways of leaving, that the way in which we leave will be one that will look after jobs and the economy, which is why we came up with the policy that we did, staying in a customs union, being close to a single market, looking after rights and, and benefits. You know, everybody knows what our line was. And that's what we tried to do. And frankly, we tried to leave for three years. I mean, we really did. You know, but I, I think that we have ended up with the centre ground being burnt away. You know, we've got the, the Lib Dems on the one hand, you know, saying that they want to revoke. We've got, the, we've got Boris Johnson wanting to leave without a deal. And there seems to be very little left in the middle. And it seems to me, therefore, that the time has, had come whereby we had to say, look, to the British people, look, we really have been trying to do as we're told. But now that we've had, now three years on, and people can see all the choices that need to be made, all the compromises, where we are now, we just need to have the opportunity to say to the public, did you vote for this? Did you vote for this? Now that we have a realistic option on how we could leave, is this what you want? Because if you do, then fine, we'll leave. But maybe you don't. You know, maybe after three years and you see that all the promises that you were made that were contradictory, you know, that you can't have everything, that we need to have a list of priorities. As I say, anything will be compromised. And Labour's, Labour's view is this. We do need to look after jobs in the economy first and foremost. That's why we have this particular package. We put this before you versus remain. No unicorns, no fake promises. This is what it looks like if you want to leave. And otherwise we can remain. And, you know, I think that... 
we've had kind of like three poles pulling us. We've had, you know, our internationalism uh, pulling us one in one direction, our, our being Democrats pulling us, you know, in, 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 an, in another direction, and our commitment, we are the Labour Party, to jobs and the economy as well. And so as time has moved on, it's, been, it's always been really difficult to try and line those three stars up. But that's what we've been doing. I have been wrestling with Brexit every day since the, since the referendum, and we have really tried to be thoughtful and careful and responsible and to try to keep the government honest and to try to get the government to do the right thing. But in the end, we are the opposition and we have very little power. All we can try and do is influence them. I mean, we went in for six weeks' negotiations with them. You know, we did try. We did try to leave, but you know we had certain things that absolutely had to be had to be done. We had to have a customs union. We have to be close to a single market. We have to look after, you know, we have to look after workers' rights. We have to look after the environment. We're not going to sell Britain short if we leave. And do you think it's a bit of a caricature to suggest it's only a London issue? Oh, sorry. Yes, that was your question. So sorry. Okay. So 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 of course you know I, I do my best to represent my constituents. As I say, they felt very disappointed many of them, and they told me in no uncertain terms, um, when, we, when we adopted a position of, right, we have to leave, but we have to leave um, in a way that will do least damage to jobs and the, jobs the economy. But you know, as I went up and down the country, it did seem to me that, quite clearly, that Labour voters in all kinds of seats, wherever I was, you know, who voted to remain, continue to have that as a, as a first priority. You know, some MPs say... I come from a leave seat, therefore I'm obliged to support leave. But when you look at the, and you drill down into what it really means to be in a leave seat, let's say you're in a seat that votes 60-40. That 40% will be Labour voters on the whole, topped up with some leave voters, you know, and so on. But without that ballast, those, those seats will be lost to us. And that's what people need to think about. Yeah, the vast majority of Labour voters want to remain. The vast majority of Labour members want to remain. We are a Remain party, but we're Democrats. And so that's why we offer a second referendum before we do anything else. That brings me on to the more immediate issue, um, which is when Parliament comes back. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Boris Johnson may or may not come back with a deal. And we don't know what shape it is going to look like quite yeah. yet. But if he does come back with one, there's a suggestion from uh, Peter Kyle and the, um, and the Kyle Wilson Amendment, as it's known, um, will try and revive this idea that somehow you could agree to the government's deal as long as it was conditional on having a people's vote. Um, where are you on that whole issue? Well, I mean, the trouble is that there are so many ifs and buts. You know, I mean, fundamentally, we're pragmatists. You know, we're pragmatists, and we need to have a referendum. We need to have a general election. Exactly how that is sequenced, I can't tell you, because we're dealing with a seven-year-old. You know, and when we're dealing with... <laughs> You know, a prime minister who says, I don't care if you pass a law saying that, oh, you know, I have to ask for an extension. I'm, or, and, and we even had to put into the legislation, you have to do this, Boris. And here you are, we've even drafted the letter for you, sign on the dotted line, uh, in order to try and pin him down. To which he says, well, I might sign, send that letter, but I might send another one saying I didn't mean it. I had my fingers crossed. 
I mean, really, this is what he's like. You know, so I just don't know what he's going to do next, how he's going to wriggle. You know, our first priority at the moment is stopping a no-deal Brexit. We stop a no-deal Brexit. Of course we want a general election and we want a referendum. Let's see what happens next. But are you open to the idea of possibly passing that deal as long as there are, there's a very strict <coughs> amendment which suggests it only can happen if there's a referendum? Is Carl I mean, it's worth. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a you know, I think it's worth considering. I mean, I have to say, you know, it's it's. I'm sure it hasn't only struck me as a possibility that if we did do that and we said, okay, we'll pass your deal, Boris, on condition that we have a referendum, that he might go back on it, and we might pass it, and then he might go, oh well, ha, got that. Ha, ha, ha. I'm going to have a general election now. Yeah. I, mean, you know. I think that's what some of your colleagues are worried about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, can I ask you a bit about the whole issue that has dominated the beginning of the conference, which is party unity? Yes, um, yes. What did you make of John London's move on Friday night to try and abolish the whole post of deputy leader? Well, I don't think I'm telling any secrets out of school that Tom Watson and I don't exactly see eye to eye. Um, and, uh, and so I'm not, you know, we're not exactly one another's greatest fans. You know, sometimes you get on with people, sometimes you don't. Um, but, you know, it does, and, and, uh, but it is really important. You know, this is, a gen this is the conference immediately before the general election. And I would have hoped that this conference would be one where we would show unity of purpose, which is to show the public what Labour stands for, what our offer is, to talk about policies and to show how we can transform people's lives. We have to gain the public's trust. We have to, we have to, we have to work at that and we need to be able for them to say, yes, that's the party that I want to be the next government. And that takes a great deal of, of, of discipline at times. Um, and obviously discipline cuts both ways, you know. Um, so, you know, I didn't think it was right to, to, to launch conference in that way with, a, with an attempt to, uh, to eradicate Tom Watson. Um, but... <laughs> so to speak. So to speak. Uh, but, you know, but it also... I mean, I, you know, I do remember, I mean, just, it was just a couple of months ago when Tom Watson was saying that half a shadow cabinet should be sacked. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it, this is not really the way to behave. You know, the way to behave is to keep focused on the prize, which is... We could be the next government, we could transform our country, and we could make it better, and the people deserve better than this. There is another way, and we have to be out there, you know, arguing it and gaining people's trust and their respect, and for them to think, yes, this is the party. And <laughs> do you think, actually, that Tom has become increasingly semi-detached from the Shadow Cabinet? He hasn't turned up to several Shadow Cabinet meetings? I mean, what's, yeah, I don't what's see a lot happening? of him, I must say. I don't see a lot of him. I, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, he's on the NEC, and I don't know how much he goes to the NEC, and I don't know how much he goes to Shadow... I mean, I, I do know how much, how little he goes to Shadow Cabinet. And, um, and we don't see him on the front bench, you know, during big debates very often either. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I... As, as people know, you know, we're not exactly bosom friends, so I wouldn't necessarily uh, be on the phone to him that often. And uh, has his positioning on Brexit, I mean, he went out on a limb the other week suggesting there should be a referendum before a general election. How unhelpful or helpful has that been to people like you and Keir Starmer who've been trying to slightly nudge the party in the right direction that you, that you want? Well, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, 
as, as, I, as I've kind of intimated, I mean, Tom Watson is Tom Watson, and, and, and you know, he says what he says. Um, what we try and do is we do try and make decisions collectively so that we can put forward a coherent position. And, uh, you know, and, and message discipline at a time like this can be, is really important. Um, and, you know, we, we need to have the party's help when it comes to what our position should be um, with a referendum and whether we should be Remain or not. You know, we need to have the party's help on that, and we're having a big debate about that at the moment. Um, but, but can you see, for example, if, if, if conference passes what you want to pass, which mm. is a very clear stance that in a referendum the party will be pro-Remain, can you imagine, can you visualise Jeremy Corbyn during that referendum advocating Remain really strongly? Do you think he'll do it? If the party says he should do it? Yeah, I should think so. I mean, I think, I think also, it's, it's not just Jeremy. I mean, it's also about the... But it is, isn't it? Because no, obviously no. a lot of people take their lead. Well, a lot of Labour supporters if it, will take their lead if from it's, the If it's Labour's official position that we campaign to remain, then we, it also unlocks an awful lot of resources and data. It also means that the, the activists can go out and campaign full-throatedly and, and not feel that they're being in any way disloyal to the party. You know, it just lets us off the leash. And, and that's the Prime Minister off the leash as well, if he is Prime Minister under these circumstances, obviously. I mean, how ludicrous would it be for him to be not giving a view during a referendum campaign? Well, as I, I mean, Jeremy has said that, and I'll just go back to his own words, he said that he is a servant of the party and he, he puts his views before the party, but it's for the party to decide. Okay. Um, can I ask you a little bit about the people around Jeremy Corbyn, the leader's office? Now, Jeremy, this morning on the Mar programme, confirmed that Andrew Fisher, who's his policy chief and the architect of the last manifesto, and probably the architect of the, co the coming manifesto, um, that Andrew had complained about a blizzard of lies and a lack of decency from some of the people around Jeremy Corbyn, and that's why he was leaving. Now, Jeremy said in response to that, that was because Andrew was extremely distressed because of some of the discussions he'd had. What, what does that say about the people around Jeremy Corbyn? It's a high-pressure job being in the leader's office, and of course there will be heated discussions at uh, at all hours of the day and night. Um, but I don't know the details of it. I'm not, you know, I'm not in the leader's office, and I didn't know about these emails. I didn't know. I mean, I knew about it for the first time when I read about it in the paper. So I was really, really saddened to hear that uh, that Andrew was going to go at the end of the year because he's a great bloke. And, uh, and very sensible and very bright and will be a great loss. And do you think maybe it's worth sending a reminder to those people who are unelected in the leader's office that they shouldn't overstep their mark, they shouldn't freelance without Jeremy's say-so? Listen, I, I'm an old-fashioned girl. And my view is, is that advisers advise and, and the elected politicians make the decisions. We make the decisions. I personally think that you... That, that it's it's counterproductive for unelected people to be briefing the press. I think that we should do things on the record. 
I think that if you, if you want to know what the Labour Party is doing on something or believes on something, ask an elected politician because we're the ones who are accountable and our advisors are there to help us, help us reach decisions. I mean, I'm 10 times the person I really am because I have a fantastic team, you know, both you know, in the constituency and in Parliament and in my shadow FCO work. You know, I can't remember all the details in relation to, you know, a, a, a development at, the, at Old Street Roundabout and, and, and what's, what's going on in the UN. <laughs> yeah, and what, what the last resolution at the UN was. Exactly. So I do need to have advisors and I need to have people who I trust. Um, and it really helps me. But I make the decisions and nothing goes out of my office without my say-so. And I sign off everything. Every single word. I am really... <laughs> poor Annie sitting there looking at Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back to the office and there'll be a stack of letters. I go, right, here we go. <laughs> well, that brings me back to your own local constituency, um, which you uh, rightly praised just then as, as being the sort of roots of your politics. Um, you've just been reselected by mm. Islington South and, and Finsbury. Um, unanimously. But, but, yeah, unanimously. <laughs> but how much time and effort did that take up? And... To what extent is that a distraction right now when everyone knows there's a snap election looming? Look, I mean, I don't think I could really say this before I had been through my trigger ballot myself because I don't want, didn't want it to look like any sort of special pleading. I mean, the truth is, is that I know that it's not my seat. Yeah, I am, I'm the MP for Islington South and Finsbury because the people of Islington South and Finsbury voted for me and they voted for me because I was the Labour candidate. And it's up to my local Labour Party to decide who they want to have as a Labour candidate. That principle is an absolute clear one and I agree with it. And what we have in the Labour Party is we have a system whereby we don't actually have the reselections until we have what's called a trigger ballot where the party actually decides whether we should even go through a reselection process. All of that makes perfect sense to me and is absolutely the sort of accountability that every member of parliament should go through. And, but you know that, I think it was, there's this phrase, isn't there, that uh, the first rule in po politics is knowing how to count. But I think the other, perhaps the second rule of pol politics is to know what time it is. And, and the question really is, I suppose, is that given that we may be facing a general election in two months, what we don't want is for local parties, instead of being outward looking, knowing they're fighting the Tories, engaging the public, asking for their trust, winning them over, getting them to vote Labour, are instead turned in on themselves and involved in a trigger ballot. And I, as I say, I'm certainly not against trigger ballots, but I just wonder about the timing of them at the moment, given that we are about to go through a general election. I mean, I was, it did, it, it did take up a bit of time. It probably took up more emotional energy than it did time because you, know, you, you get really paranoid. I mean, this is the, I mean, I have absolutely the best job in the whole world and I might not have it if my members decided to trigger me and deselect me which is completely within their rights and of course it made me feel you know, very paranoid and you know and, and it's distressing but you know hey it's part of the job of being an MP you know so it does it you know it and some people have more of a struggle perhaps with their with their local constituency parties than I fortunately have with mine at the moment. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we'll see what Brexit policy Well, we'll like see that, what happens, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, but your so. point is that it's about timing and that it's about with, timing. with election looming. I just, I, I just think that it's, uh, 
It's unfortunate that we go through that because you know, taking it back to my first point is we should be taking it to the Tories. That's what we should be doing. You know, the people deserve us and deserve better than this. We, but we have to win their trust and we have to win them over and we must be out there arguing what it is that Labour can do and how we can make a difference. And if we're spending our time, and if MPs are spending their time trying to persuade members not to trigger them, you know, and, and the membership themselves may be getting, finding themselves getting organised and so on. I mean, when we're at a conference like this, you know, there's Labour banners everywhere where it's a big Labour, you know, family party. You know, it's, it's quite easy for us to kind of, you know, get quite focused in on who we are and, and, and our processes and, and so on. But... It's the timing. It's the timing. We have, to, we have to be moving on and we have to be looking at the prize, which is winning the general. Afternoon. Afternoon. <laughs> Don't mind us. Um, the whole issue of the, the Tom Watson deputy leader role recently, um, Jeremy Corbyn has, has reacted to that by saying, actually, we want to re reform and re look again at the whole rules for deputy leadership. And there's a suggestion he's come out with today that possibly we could have a, a gender balance, you could have a female deputy leader and a male deputy leader. Um, would you be interested in, 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 in that idea? Well, um, you mean personally or yeah, as, a, going, as a principle? Going from the deputy leader. I mean, I've only just, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the problem with this kind of, this, the, with conference is that you tend to sort of rush from one thing to another, and it's quite difficult even to know what's happening. You know, it's only after a conference is finished do <laughs> I find out what's happened at conference sometimes, you know, with some of the you things. You should read HuffPost, it's all Yes, there. I should read HuffPost, <laughs> but I should also have time to read HuffPost, which obviously I do normally, but, you know, during, uh, during conference, it's, it's more difficult. I mean, I have lots of roles. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a member of parliament for a fantastic constituency. I'm shadow foreign secretary and I'm shadow first secretary. I mean, I, I've kind of got lots to do, you know, lots to keep me busy. So that's a no. You wouldn't go for it, you think? Let's see. Let's see. Okay. Um, now, you replaced Tom Watson at PMQs famously in the sense that actually the deputy leader would have normally taken PMQs when the, when the leader was away. No, but, not really. But well, Harriet Harman used to do it. Well, it depends what the role of the deputy leader is. It depends what the role of the deputy leader is. You know, we've got a shadow first secretary, and that's me, and we've got a deputy leader, and that's Tom, and we've got different jobs. Um, Tom's on the NEC. He's, uh, he has a lot to do with the running of the party. I don't have anything to do with that, but I deputised for Jeremy during Prime Minister's questions. Speaking of which, you mm -hmm. didn't deputise for him in June, um, and Rebecca Long-Bailey, she did it. She did a good job, by all accounts. Um, lots of people thought she, she was pretty effective. But it seemed a bit unusual, because you were sitting along the front bench, and you normally do it. And now David Liddington couldn't resist having a bit of a barb, saying that you'd been dispatched to internal exile because of what you said over Brexit. Um, how much uh, sort of nerve did it take to sit there on that front bench during that deputy PMQs? Well, I mean, it's very nervy doing Prime Minister's questions, and Rebecca hadn't done it before, so, you know, it was important that I turned up to support her. Um, it's a matter for the Leader's Office who does uh, Prime Minister's questions in the end, and for Jeremy, and it was decided that uh, Rebecca should do it then. What I was curious about the whole incident was that somehow Jeremy was under the impression you wouldn't actually be in London, but you were in London. How did, how did that happen? I'm not going into all of that. <laughs> okay. Um, right. Um, can I ask you a little bit more about the role of women within the party um, and in politics generally? Um, Harriet Harman uh, last week was effectively challenged by her local party. Some activists there said that actually she should withdraw from the, the race to become Speaker. 
Do you think some parts of the left have a woman problem? Um, I think that things are changing really fast in the Labour Party. When I go up and down the country and I meet activists, you know, no matter where I am, to be honest, the, the party seems to be run by people my age, women like me. And, and we are the backbone of the party. We tend to be, you know, we tend to be the ones who do all the organising. And, um, and there are increasing numbers of us being, being uh, councillors. And 45% you know, of, M- M- uh, of, of, of Labour MPs are women. Half the shadow cabinet is women. You know, but it isn't just a question of the numbers. I personally think, and Harriet was so much behind this, and I have so much respect for her for doing this, was when we introduced all women shortlists, it was a real shock for the party, it was a really difficult political internal battle that we that we fought, and we fought a battle where we basically said to, to people, "Look, guys, it was usually guys. You know, we've had nothing but all male shortlists for years and years. We are not going to get a party in Parliament that looks like the people who vote for us unless we have all women shortlists." And it. And that internal discussion that we had and that internal fight that we had about why it was important, how we could get more, why aren't women standing, how can we get women to stand, what do they add, what value do they add, what can they, how can they make our politics better, all of those sorts of debates happened up and down the country and we won it. And, and as a result, I think the, our party has changed and so, so much changed for the better. But it's like, it's like a wave of feminism has kind of come from the grassroots upwards through the party and washed through. And I think we're a very different party to the party that we were 20 years ago and so much better. But you're also a very different party in 2019. <laughs> you're also a very different party in 2019 from the party you were in 2015, partly because of the influx of new young members, but partly because of the return of some people who were expelled. Um, and that was my original question. Are some parts of the hard left, do they have a real problem with women like Harriet Harman? Well, they've joined the Labour Party, and the Labour Party has changed, and they need to change with the party, you know, get with the project. Um, so if anybody has, you know, kind of historic kind of views, you know, don't worry about feminism, dear, when the revolution comes, you know, you'll be equal. I mean, all this sort of nonsense that we used to hear in the 70s. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to kind of be unfair in caricature, but sometimes you felt a bit like that, you know, your feminism's getting in the way of socialism kind of thing. is like, really? Um, so that's, uh, yeah. you know. Um, now, you were selected by an all-women shortlist, um, mm. um, but there are some seats that are coming up right now. Um, like I was stop- selected on an all-women shortlist. There were 43 excellent women who went for my seat. Yeah, oh, no, no, I'm sure there were. Um, but it brings and me my to- local party asked for an all-women shortlist. Yeah, but the whole point is that all-women shortlist... <laughs> <laughs> Some people at the moment think that... And I'll tell you another thing. I'll tell you another thing. I, when, I was, when I first thought of going to be an MP, there was an all-women shortlist in where I lived in the East End. I didn't get selected, but people started saying to me, have you ever thought of being an MP? And perhaps even more oddly for me, when I look back on it, I hadn't thought of being an MP until there was an all-women shortlist. You know, I mean, I think I've kind of got over that now, but I think at the time... We had a long way to go culturally, and 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 the and so when we had an all women shortlist, and I started thinking about it, I thought, well, why not? Why on earth not? You know, I'm, I'm a Labour 
kind of, I'm a labour woman through and through. You know, I was brought up on a council estate. My mum was a single parent. We, you know, we lived on benefits. I've done really well. I've been a barrister. You know, I've, I've got kids. I live in the area. Why wouldn't I be a, an equally good representative than, you know, this guy? You know, yet another guy. And, and, so, and so that really helped me to start thinking about it. And there were lots of women who didn't think of coming forward. And the part of the problem always is with us women is that we have to be asked... We say no, we have to be asked again, and then we have to be asked again. But it's not that we're not as good as the men. We usually are, have to be <laughs> better. <laughs> well, that's, that's precisely why I was asking about all women shortlist, because what's happening at the moment isn't seats like Stockport, seats like Vauxhall, where there are women who, are, who were the Labour MP, um, are, are leaving or have defected for whatever reason. Um, the party is not reinstalled all women shortlists. Um, now, there used to be a convention that whether, whether there was a woman standing down, there would be an all women shortlist. There isn't in those two seats. How worried are you by that? I mean, I haven't had... An, I, I mean, I've heard, you know, individual stories about, about where we were expecting an all women shortlist and there hadn't been one. Um, but I don't get an overview because I'm not on the NEC, so I'm not able to say... But as a say, principle, shouldn't that principle As apply? a principle, what I would say is this, is that we are at 45%. Yeah, it just takes a little push for us to be 50%. I really hope that at the next general election we don't fall back below 45%. We should be confident that we will be half women. Was there an element of sexism in the whole row about the St George's flag in Rochester? When you go way back to when you had to resign, um, you didn't delete that tweet. I've noticed um, a lot of people said to your credit, you, it's still up there. Um, what happened at the time? Was there an element of sexism? Was there something else going on? And what did it say about the party at the time? And what did it say about you? Well, look, I mean, I was taking photographs at a by-election and I did a series of images from Rochester, which was a by-election, in order to kind of give people an insight into what a by-election is like. There were lots of different images I put up, you know, clouds behind Rochester Cathedral, some children had made their own posters, you know, a monster raving loony party. And then I went past a house and it had three or four England flags up and it was a long time since you know since the since the since the football so you know it was a very striking image the guy couldn't see out of his windows so I took a photograph of that and um, and people accused me of of sneering and I think that upset me really more than anything else you know the idea that I was looking down on people I think I'm a southeastern girl you know, I I come from a council estate <laughs> my brother was a builder um, I don't know. I, I, I wonder sometimes whether whether women from the southeast are seen to have posh accents when men who sound the same don't seem to be seen to have posh accents. You know, um, there's sort of something made of that. But but I'm not pretending that I'm not now immensely privileged. You know, I'm a member of parliament. That's an immense privilege, um, and I've done well. You know. That brings me on to Boris Johnson. Um, now, you, you've, you've um, sparred with him across the dispatch box <laughs> repeatedly when he was Foreign Secretary. Um, but during that period, he'd refer to you occasionally as Lady Nuji. Yeah. Um, now, he was reprimanded by the Speaker for doing that, but what, what did it say about Boris Johnson that he wanted to do that? I mean, he's not the only one on the Tory benches, as you know. Who've no, the Prime Minister that. did it too. 
I, I was, uh, I was, um, yeah, the, uh, Theresa May also referred to me as Lady Nishi. But Boris, I mean, it says a lot about Boris because Boris couldn't even remember what the, uh, what the accusation was. So he was saying, oh, Baroness, uh, and so, and his PPS behind him had to tell him, you know. Um, so my husband was, I met my husband when I was 22 and he's become a judge and I'm hugely proud of him. And, uh, and when he became a High Court judge, he was knighted. But I can't pretend that I've had anything to do with that. I mean, I really haven't, you know. I mean, poor man. I've never even ironed a shirt for him. I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, he, I mean, we have, the way we do our marriage is that you know, he has his life and I have, I have my, my life. We, we really respect each other and we, and we love each other. Um, and, uh, and we get on. You know, and he brings me breakfast in the mornings, and, you know, I'm immensely lucky. Um, but we do have separate worlds. And some partnerships are, you know, tradit quite traditional, and where the woman will give quite a lot of support to the man, and then the man will do well. And in those circumstances, if he gets an honour, you know, it may well be right that she shares that honour. But my honours are my honours. I am a member of the Privy Council. You know, I am an advisor to the Queen. I am Right Honourable Emily Thornbury, MP for Islington, South and Finsbury, Shadow Foreign Secretary and Shadow <laughs> Foreign Secretary. So, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how you think Labour should deal with Boris Johnson in an election yeah. campaign. Yeah. I mean, you've got lots of experience yeah. of, of being up against him. Yeah. But, Simon, <laughs> but in London, let's not forget, he won twice. And Simon Fletcher, who was Ken Livingston's chief of staff, said he's a formidable opponent. We shouldn't underestimate him. Mm. Um, he will steal your policies if he wants to. He will dissemble. Um, he won't turn up for things. And he'll, he'll use the media very, very effectively. What's the answer to the Boris tricks? Well, so from my experience of shadowing Boris, so Boris's only job before he became Prime Minister was to be um, Foreign Secretary. And during those two years, I would shadow him. And what was obvious was that, and we all know this now, you know, was that he was lazy, he was glib, he couldn't be bothered to read his briefs. He thought that a kind of nice turn of phrase would always be sufficient. Um, and the way to catch him out is to be a girly swat. That's how you do it. And so, you know, when we were, so when we were facing each other across the dispatch box, yeah, I would quote things at him, things he'd said, you know. So, Boris, you say blah, 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 blah. And he would just let this look of panic would come into his eyes. So he couldn't even remember saying it, let alone what the subject was about. Well, there, was, there was one time when we were, when, you, know, you know, during the Queen's speech, and you're supposed to, you're supposed to walk into the Lords with your, with, your, with your opponent. So I walked into the Lords with Boris, and, uh, and you know, you exchanged niceties, and I was saying, so, Boris, who's on your team? And he went, Bleh. So I said, is it right that you don't have... You don't, <laughs> You don't, you don't have any women. And he went, well, <laughs> he genuinely didn't even know who was on his team. And I'm, you know, really, Boris, you do need to concentrate. If you don't, you know, and, and, and so, I mean, I think that's how you do it. You just, you just, you know, pin him down onto the, but the trouble is, right, is that, is that we've had, you know, genial, you know, charming, you know, bumbling people, you know, around the world. But look at the damage that they do. I mean, if you think about George W. Bush, you know, kind of mumbling and bumbling his way into a war in Iraq, you know, or Bellasconi, you know, and his, what were they called, Bumba, 
what were they called? Bunga girl bunga, parties. Bunga parties, yeah. you know, and his, and his kind of jokey persona, you know, just ruining the Italian economy, you know, dragging the country down. You know, we can't allow this to happen, and particularly at a time of crisis like this, to have a bumbling, lying person running our country. You know, they, he needs to be pinned down, and we need to be clear that, that you, need to, you need to do the work. You have to do, and also if you don't do the work, then you can be captured, frankly, you know, as he has been. I mean, he may not have any idea as to what it is that he's doing because he may not be bothered to, to look into it and to think about it, but Dominic Cummings does, and Dominic Cummings has a clear idea, and if, if Boris Johnson doesn't think through the advice that he's had because he can't be bothered to read the briefs, as we know from <coughs> Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, etc., you know, then he will be captured, and that is very dangerous because, you know, Boris Johnson may only have been, a, you know, was elected only by, what, 90,000 people from the home counties, sort of, you know, sort of elderly white men of limited social experience, but at least he was... <laughs> but at least he was elected by someone. No-one's elected Dominic Cummings, but if Dominic Cummings is actually now in charge, we're in real difficulties. You know, that's the, that's the issue. That's the issue for me, you know? I want to ask you a little bit about... Uh, party conference. You've, you've been at lots of rallies and events already, and you're going to do more. Um, yes. How do you get through it? Well, well, how, do you, how do you maintain your stamina for a party conference? I love party conference. <laughs> I love. I look forward to party conference. I've always loved party conference. I have party conference friends that I've known for 30 years. I don't now remember their names. I'm now too old, you know. I can't read their names on the. <laughs> my eyesight isn't good enough. But I only and I only see them at conference. But you know, I love it. It's a big family party. It's hugely intense. It's very political. You know, we debate earnestly until the early hours of the morning, and I love it. And I come home unable to walk, hardly able to speak. I've smoked too much. I've drunk too much. You know, I'm, I mean, it's it's. It's ridiculous. I'm, I'm 59 years old. I ought to know better, but I don't. And I just, and I just sort of carry on like this. And it, but worse than that is, is sometimes that's you know. So I just keep going, and then the adrenaline drops, and then I collapse. And and, uh, and you know, my husband always laughs at me. But it's like being in bed <laughs> for the next day and just like not being able to handle anything. Um, and then, uh, but then there are sometimes when suddenly something will happen immediately after party conference. You know, so, um, so three years ago, Annie and I were on our way back from party conference, and and uh, she was supposed to be going off to university because she's uh, she's supposed to be, she was doing an, she was doing an, uh, a sandwich here. You know, she'd done a bit of time, so she was supposed to be going back to Leeds. Anyway, we got on the train, and um, and and the president of Israel has died, and or former president of Israel, Shimon Peres, has died, and. Um, and we're on the train and we're sitting opposite, luckily we're sitting opposite the General Secretary because the invitation then comes in for us, for me to go to Israel to, the, to represent the Labour Party at uh, Shimon Peres' funeral, which was a great honour and, and obviously I wanted to do it, but suddenly I was having to, you know, you, because people get buried very quickly, so I was going to have to basically get the train from, where was it we were coming from? Liverpool. So we were on the train from Liverpool, and uh, so we, we have to get the train into London. She has to go and borrow some of her sister's clothes, because all her clothes are at university, <laughs> ready for her to go. She has to ask the university if she can, she can be a little bit late. And the two of us, then I go home, turn around, get some clothes out of the cupboard, and go off to Bryce Norton, and then we get on, 
Cam Force One and, uh, and, and fly off... Uh, oh, with David Cameron. With David Cameron. So David Cameron and Boris Johnson, I wish I'd been there, because um, it was immediately after the referendum. So they, we go in through the door and they turn left into the first class bit. Annie and I go out the back. Um, and <laughs> so heaven knows what would have happened uh, between those two because it was kind of quite interesting. And then we get, we get the plane there and then they go off in there. They have a, a motorcade and uh, go from Tel Aviv to up to uh, Jerusalem where the, where the funeral is going to be. And I get onto the bus. This is a rather old bus. And me and Annie and the chief rabbi and the guy who's in charge of the board of deputies and various other people, we get into this old bus and we're kind of trundling up the road. And the bus breaks down, right? <laughs> so there I am with the chief rabbi <laughs> and the leader of the board of deputies. And we're sitting on the side of the road wondering what on earth's going to happen. And all these cavalcades are going past and the road has been closed. And we're sitting in this knackered old bus. And I, after a bit, I say, I've had enough of this. I'm getting out for a fag. So I try and get out from the fag, and they're all going, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. This is a high security word. You'll get, you'll get shot. And I say, I don't care. I literally don't care. <laughs> you really are addicted, aren't you? I really am addicted. Anyway, so, so me and the chief rabbi, you know, we have this as a shared experience. <laughs> we got rescued from the side of the road. Um, and my other story from that time was, was after, the, after the funeral, um, there's the funeral, there's the official funeral, and then there's going to the graveside. And I went to the graveside, and, uh, and then we were waiting for um, transport to take us to, you know, back to the hotel. And, um, and I was there with David Cameron and Boris Johnson, and we were sort of standing there and uh, waiting for this lift. And there's this golf buggy. It's got water in it. So the idea is, is, that, is that mourners can take a bottle of water. And Boris says to David Cameron, oh, let's get in the golf buggy, shall we? I mean, this is Shimon Peres' funeral, and he wants to get in a golf buggy full of water. Anyway, so David Cameron then says, no, Boris, you'll get shot. He <laughs> <laughs> might have regretted that. <laughs> Which, which brings me finally on to, you, you mentioned Israel. Um, Israel and Palestine and policy, obviously you're the shadow foreign secretary. Um, how depressing was it that Labour Friends of Israel had to withdraw their stall from this conference because they, they felt it wasn't the right safe environment for them? Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very unfortunate. Um, That's more than unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's more than unfortunate. We believe, as a Labour Party, and the international community believes as well, that there should be a two-state solution to the Middle East. It means that we believe in a state of Israel and a state of Palestine, alongside one another, living in peace and security and harmony. And that is what the international community has wanted, and that is what our policy is. Therefore, we are friends of Palestine, and we are friends of Israel. We're not friends with the extreme Netanyahu government, and we are really critical of the way that they behave. But we are friends of Israelis. I met some Israelis who I'm friends with. They are at a kibbutz down at the bottom, down by Gaza. And there were these two old boys, and they took me to a hill just on the edge of the kibbutz. And they'd set up this kibbutz with the sort of fire of socialism. You know, they were setting up a community that was going to be equal, that they were going to work in the fields. And, and they were pointing Gaza out to me, and they were saying, it's dreadful seeing this misery. You know, we used to pick oranges in the fields with these, with these guys, and now 
we're not allowed to speak to them, they're not allowed out, you know, and all we do is we have a water purification plant down the, down the beach so that the, all of the sewage which is coming out of the failed garden system is, is purified before it gets to our water. And this isn't what we want. And I'm friends with them. I'm friends with them. And would you therefore maybe attend the Labour Friends for Israel reception? I know you're going to Labour Friends of Palestine at this conference. There's a Labour Friends for Israel event. Um, I'm not sure who's going on behalf of the Labour Party this year. I don't know either. I'm, I've, I've got a fairly full programme. Um, it's... Uh, I had a bit of a falling out with Labour Friends of Israel over um, a statement that they made earlier on this year, and I privately asked them to apologise and withdraw it, and they haven't. So, I um, I may not um, I may not be going. Okay. Right. Um, now, time for questions. Let's see who's going to put the hand up first. Okay, we've got a mic that's going to rove around. Um, the lady there in the middle. Let's take her first. With a stripe, uh, the skirt on. Yeah. Oh, is it working? Uh, yeah, I yeah, think so. Yeah, thank you. So um, this isn't on Brexit, uh, uh, thankfully, I guess. Um, what I'm concerned with a lot is um, asylum and immigration and how that impacts LGBT plus people and uh, what Labour Party policy and how we can fix it going forward is going to be. Okay, we'll, we'll take them one at a time. So let's just answer that one first. Okay. Um, yes, I mean there are there are. Uh, I have constituents myself who are, who are gay and who are who are out and who could not go back to their home country because of what of the way in which um, uh, uh, LGBT plus people are treated in, within their country. They simply wouldn't be safe. And it is an abomination, quite frankly, some of the things that these um, people who are claiming asylum have to go through in order to prove that they're gay. Uh, it's, it's, it's shocking and it's humiliating and shouldn't be happening in a civilised country. Right. That chap there in the sixth row down. Thank you. I'm uh, Saif Dean from um, the Iraqi Embassy. Uh, Your Excellency, very nice to see you. It's been nice a while since we, uh, we met. Um, how do you see the current situation in the Middle East, especially the US-Iran tensions? Right, yeah. Um, so, first of all, I think that, so you'll be, you won't be surprised to hear, um, I think that Donald Trump's approach to this is reckless and dangerous and short-sighted. I think the, uh, the way in which he has essentially said that it's uh, definitely uh, Iran who's been uh, attacking um, Saudi Arabia, um, whether or not that's, that's true is another matter, but, you know, and that uh, he's going to leave it to the Kingdom of Saud to decide what the response is going to be. I mean, it really is not for the Kingdom of Saud to decide what response the Americans take. Um, I do think that what the response the Americans should take is this, is that they should look again at the Iranian nuclear deal, which was one of the great successes of, of diplomacy over the last you know, 10, 20 years. It was a way in which we were bringing Iran in from the cold. We were working with, in Iranian terms, progressives within Iran, 
um, and and essentially saying to them if they if they cut back on their and started to cut back on their nuclear program that in exchange we would loosen sanctions. And of course it didn't deal with everything. Of course that we have many other things we need to talk to Iran about, but we can't talk to them at all. I mean, not least the seizing of hostages, frankly, um, including Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe. Um, but there, there are a number of things that we need to talk to them about, but we need at least to bring them in from the cold and also to give support to those people who in Iranian terms are progressives. And my concern is the way in which it's not just Donald Trump's decision for the Americans to pull out of the, of the JCPOA, it's also their, the nature of their sanctions as such that it can affect businesses throughout the world if they have any dealings with America. So it's not just the Americans saying don't have anything to do with Iran. They insist that if anybody has anything to do with them, they won't be allowed to have anything to do with Iran, which has, in our, in our interconnected world, a real chilling effect on what's happening in Iran. So Iran is essentially saying, I think, um, the same as they did doing the tanker wars in the 80s. They're saying, if you disrupt our, our, um, our, our ability to sell oil, we're going to disrupt everybody else's ability to sell oil. And it's a very dangerous situation. And I, I, I lay the blame... You know, at least to start with, with Donald Trump's irresponsible attitude, who's, and his only objection, as far as I can see, to the Iranian nuclear deal was that President Obama signed it. You know, and I think that what he hoped was that he would be able to come back with some new, new super you know, um, Iranian nuclear deal that would look exactly the same as the previous one in the way that he's torn up other agreements and then swooped in with his own super deal, which is exactly the same. Um, and he thought that he could do that with the Iranian nuclear deal without ever understanding the huge complexities um, that were involved and the fact that some of the best minds in the world were involved in getting that agreement and how important it was for peace. Let's take another one. Um, chat there, just on the end. No, no, the chat there, next to you. I think, Emily, I, I met you 30, 30, 30 years ago. Did you? In this place. <laughs> you were a student, I don't know what you were. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm glad to see you sitting where you are. But I had some problems with you about this Brexit. Now, Corbyn has said MPs were unable to come to a decision. The matter should go to the people again. I accept that as a political imperative. Then, you you are saying he has to say something more. That's not democratic. I know our, our polity has evolved in an elective dictatorship under Blair and others. We, if you ask somebody, if you ask me for an opinion, and then tell me that I tell you what your opinion should be, mm. it's totally anti-democratic. Mm. And I'm proud of the fact we are led by a thoroughbred Democrat in this party. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, no, I understand that. I understand where you're coming from, and I do, and I do get the argument. I think the problem is going to be is that during a referendum, it will be very difficult for us to sit it out. And, and I think part of the reason that we didn't win the referendum last time was because we didn't put forward a, the case for Europe. Yeah, for so many years, everybody had always been excusing everything, blaming Europe for everything. Actually, what we do need to be doing is making a positive case for Europe. Not, not 
you know, I'm, I mean, I'm part of the, the uh, group of MPs which, uh, which is called, um, we call ourselves uh, Love Socialism, Hate Brexit. And we believe that, that, the, that the Europe that we would remain in would be one where, the, of course, there are reforms. I mean, when I, I speak to, to European countries all the time and say to them, I'm speaking to the Finns who got chair um, a couple of days ago, and I was saying, look, there are things that we learned as a result of our referendum, things that are shortcomings of the European Union, that frankly are the same experiences as working people's experience of the European Union right across Europe. And it would only be right if we do remain that we work with you honestly and openly to make sure that we reform the European Union. But, you know, reforming it is one thing, leaving it and, and, and sailing off into the mid-Atlantic into the arms of Donald Trump is something else. Another question? Uh, chat down here, second row. Uh, Adam Payne from Business Insider. Um, given your very strong views on having a referendum and campaigning to remain, mm. do you think the Labour Party should consider at the, at the upcoming election allowing some of its candidates uh, perhaps form electoral packs with candidates, like-minded pro-EU, pro-referendum candidates from other opposition parties? No, I don't believe in pacts. I don't believe in pacts. And I think that, you know, if we, if we win and we're a minority and we need to rely on Scots Nats or Liberals or whatever, then we don't go into a formal um, agreement with them. We just run the government and they support us or they don't. And if they decide not to support us and bring back a Tory government, they'll have to answer to their electorate as to how it is that they undermined a Labour government and let the Tories back in. All right, another question. Lady there in the second row. This, over here, in the second row. Obviously, Brexit is a, is a huge and really important focus, but it is overshadowing pretty much everything else mm. on the foreign policy debate. Mm. So what are the global uh, foreign policy issues mm. that you wish were getting more attention and you think should be more of a priority mm. in the forthcoming general election? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the, I think the JCPOA and, and what's happening in Iran is very important. Obviously, what's happening with the, with the elections in Israel and what an impact that will have on Israel, but also on on Palestine and the future of any possibility of there being a two-state solution is another really important thing. What is happening in Hong Kong and, and what the future is for Hong Kong is another really important issue. And I probably, f I mean, there are so many, um, <laughs> there are so many. Uh, I'm gonna, I have lists and lists, you know, but, uh, but the other one I think for me probably is, is Yemen, okay. is Yemen. Another question. Um, this chap at the front here. What's my wife and myself are disabled people, and after the 31st of October, what's going to happen to our EU travel rights that have been given by the EU for, for chain train journeys, train journeys, etc.? The other question is, with the immediate problem, what's, what, what's your opinion on what's happening with Thomas Cook? Yes. All right. Yes. Yes. Very Two good, good questions. Very good. Very good. Um, 
my apologies that my um, I may be out of date in relation to Thomas Cook because I've I've been you know the last couple of days I've been a bit sort of, but uh, but from what I understand they they are, they're asking their investors um, or the government for additional funds to keep going, and they're making the point which I think is right is that if they do go under then actually it'll cost the government more in terms of of, of bringing foreign nationals home, um, uh, sorry British nationals home from foreign countries, um, and so. <coughs> It is something where you're right. I mean, it is an issue that the government does need to be seized of and, uh, and actually focused on. And, and at a turbulent times like this, these are exactly the sort of crises that uh, government ministers don't seem to focus on sufficiently in order to be able to, to answer. Um, and the other question is, is what happens with travel rights? Well, no deal is no deal. And that's the, you know, that's the issue. And, of course, you know, people say oh, let's have a clean Brexit, let's have no deal. But the truth is, is that, of course, you know, we may leave with no deal, but then we have to agree a deal. You know, so it's not as though we'll have a clean Brexit and that will be the end of Brexit. That will just be the start. And it'll be a really bad-tempered start as well. And the idea of being able to negotiate with people in an, in an atmosphere of mutual trust, when Boris Johnson has, has deliberately driven us off a cliff with a union jack sticking out of the back of the car, is just, you know, is, is, is reckless in the extreme. All right, we've got time for one final question, I'm afraid. Um, the chap right back at the... He's had his hand up for a while. Yeah. Uh, my name's Andy Abrams. I'm the uh, newly elected mayor of Mansfield, uh, 16 years uh, first Labour mayor. But it's in the backdrop, uh, backdrop of 72% Brexit, uh, and we had a Tory MP for the first time for 99 years. Um, I, I got in uh, by talking about Labour values. If I'd mentioned Brexit at any point, and, and diverted, uh, I had to divert away from that. Um, so... It's back to that question. I think there's a bit of a north-south uh, divide perception on the Brexit issue. Um, uh, in the northern towns like Mansfield, uh, they, they, they say, well, they'll never vote for Labour again uh, because of the Brexit issue. And uh, uh, I think the democratic position that, the, you, that they've been stating, that each area should be able to look at those circumstances... Uh, should be followed through uh, and not say we have one position because it reflects the, the country is split in families is split in areas and the only honest way is for everybody to put the best point forward and to represent their areas and then let the people decide is, is that credible i think it's a, i mean I, I do think it's difficult i mean we we um you know about the polling in relation to people who have been described as, as, what are they called? Skinner Brexiteers, isn't it? You know, those who voted for Brexit, but who are wedded deeply to Labour values and, and appreciate that, you know, we are the, you know, we are the party that represents them and will never vote Tory and certainly never vote for Boris Johnson. And, and who, for whom... Brexit is an issue, and it may well become more of an issue now, given all of the arguing about it. But, but over the last few years, it's not been as important as, as jobs, as the fact that in so many small towns, for people, for children growing up in that small town, for them to have a, a, a good job, they leave 
and they don't necessarily come back. And, and the communities that are not sufficiently well connected, because although you can get up to a city in, uh, in the north of the country, you can't move between towns easily through, through either the road system or the train system. And you know, the conservatives who sort of got that through a focus group maybe, who then sort of started talking about the northern powerhouse, but we know that it's a lie and it doesn't really, you know, it's all just PR. It doesn't really amount to very much at all. So I think that there is you know, a great deal of work that, and, they, and, there are, and you know, we've had 10 years of a government without a proper regional strategy. I mean, you know, you know how little investment there is in the, in the regions in order to be able to support economies up and down the country. It's always about London and the southeast. And you know, that work can be done and will be done by Labour and by our regional investment banks and by the devolution that we're talking about and by the fact that, you know, we have, we have different priorities. You know, we want to look after the whole country. And I think that appeal is a very strong one. And when you talk to people, as, as you did, successfully you did, about Labour values and about what it is that Labour can offer, you know, how many people this September spent as much time thinking about Brexit as they did about could they afford all the school uniforms? You know, I mean, this is life. This is real life. You know, for many people, Brexit is why the news got boring and they just want to be able to get on with all the other things. And whilst it is our duty as a party to get into government and to sort Brexit out as best we can in the interests of the country, we must never allow ourselves to be distracted from the fact that there are more people sleeping in doorways fact that so many people more to, you know, rely on food banks, that our National Health Service is not being invested in, that schools are sending begging letters to parents so they can afford the pencils, that we're not having proper infrastructure, that the Northern Powerhouse is not real and needs to be real. But all of these are the issues that are real labour issues and we need to talk to people about that as well. And my concern, obviously, is that the next general election could be a Brexit election and just be about one issue. And we have to be very careful that it doesn't become that. But it does seem to me that one way in which we will be able to help ourselves is by having a clear line on Brexit so that we can also talk about everything else. And so that when Jeremy goes on to television, he's not constantly asked, what's your policy on Brexit? You know, instead, he can say, that's what our policy is on Brexit. Now, let's talk about bread and butter issues. That's great. Uh, I'd like to thank Emily so much for giving us a whole hour there. Hopefully you found it helpful and productive. And um, thanks once again to you for coming, obviously. And if you haven't signed up to the war zone, why not? Um, keep reading Hot Post. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.